Um, when Jillian was talking about hilarity and giving and joy breaking out, it reminded me of our wedding day. Um, so um, our wedding day was a real mixed emotion sort of day. Um, the night before our wedding, um, we were getting married in the UK. Julian's parents had flown out from South Africa. Lots of you will be familiar with this story. Um, Julian's mom had got sick the week before with an illness that no one could really explain, but she ended up going into hospital in intensive care, got induced into a coma. It was crazy. And the night before our wedding, Julian got a call to say that the doctors were saying she was going to die, that he should go and say goodnight, uh, goodbye to her. And, uh, and so we were kind of weren't even sure if we'd be able to get married on our wedding day. Um, and so literally the morning of our wedding, I phoned Julian, are we getting married? Mum was still in a coma, but didn't die that, that night and didn't die at all and is still alive and well today. But anyway, on our wedding day, it was kind of this crazy day of not being sure if we were going to get a call at any moment from the hospital to say that she'd passed away. So we were both um, pretty numb <laughs> throughout the whole thing. It was pretty crazy. But the highlight by far for me of our wedding day was the one hour ceremony. God did something completely miraculous for us in that ceremony. I've, I know we were getting married, so we're biased, but I've never been to a ceremony like it. It was um, thick with the presence of God. I, I've literally never been to a wedding where the presence of God has been so tangible. Um, so much so that joy broke out in a very inappropriate way. Literally, people started bursting out laughing in the congregation in a way that you just wouldn't, it's not appropriate to do at someone else's wedding. Uh, I got hit with joy so hard that I was shaking so hard that I thought I was going to fall over. And Julian was holding me up and literally internally, I'm just praying, not now, Jesus. Like for one time in my life, I want to look elegant and put together and beautiful. And here I am like, ah, and it was just like this crazy, inappropriate joy. And as Julian was talking about joy and giving, I remembered that. And I thought we're, we're going to have moments like that where people would think this is, this is not the moment for it. Maybe in the worship or maybe in the preach, joy is going to break out. But God is going to do miracles in our community in the offering moment. And I really want us to have, as Julian kind of set it out for us, to have an expectation of healing to break out as we give. And like literally the incredible miracles that we're craving and dreaming of. Um, let's understand that there's something as we partner in giving that opens the doorway for, um, for the atmosphere of heaven to come. So anyway, that was just a thought I had. That wasn't part of my preach, but anyway. Um, this is also not part of my preach, but during the worship time, God gave me a, uh, an image that I thought, oh, I, I should start there and then we'll see where we go. I, I don't even know where we're going to go. <laughs> I saw a picture of two scenes that were remarkably similar, but actually very different. Both of them involved preparation. Both of them involved uh, women setting up flowers, um, people bring for something. Uh, both of them were actually pretty kind of in many ways, serious moments and uh, people were being invited and guests being ushered in. Um, one of them was a funeral, the other was a wedding. 
they, they actually look very, very similar. You're inviting people, you're setting up food, you're getting organized, there's going to be songs, there, all sorts of things are actually very similar, but the context are worlds apart. And I saw in the first image that there was uh, women like attending a gravesite, like it was their job to make this thing look beautiful and fresh flowers and the routine goes on and on and on where they're making sure that the gravesite looks beautiful and well respected and there's people who live like that who are attached to a grave that they're consistently going back and frustrated when they see flowers have died or someone may have put something dirty there and they clean the gravesite and their whole world is attached to maintaining that site that's what they do week in, week out with fresh flowers. And then you've got the wedding side where it's maybe a little bit more chaos, but it's the same preparation, but there's all sorts of anticipation of life in that preparation. And I was thinking of Mary and the other women, the, the day when they went to Jesus' tomb, they fully anticipated that they would live the rest of their lives in the first camp. They fully anticipated they were going to attend to him. But really, had Jesus not risen, that would be their life from that moment on. There is no doubt in my mind that those women thought, oh, they weren't thinking, we'll do this and then we'll get on with our lives. There was no getting on with anything. Jesus had marked them so radically that risen or not risen, they would maintain that gravesite. You better believe it. That's what they were going for. That was going to be their life from that day on. And of course, they go to an empty tomb and everything is different. So many people think that what we're doing here is maintaining a gravesite that we come together on Sundays and we clear off the dust and we bring fresh flowers and we see our role as guardians of a monument, that we come together and we gather around to remember. Uh, so many people see that table as exactly that. Let's, it's like we're holding a wake here and we eat and we drink and we tell great stories of what a great guy he was. That's what people think we do on Sundays. Maybe that's what some of us think we're doing, but that's the uh, lens through which we come as if we're just here to talk about what a great guy Jesus was before we go back to work on Monday and get on with real life. But we'll come back again next week to clear the dust off again and to get rid of the old flowers and to put fresh flowers on as if that's what he's invited us to. But we haven't come to a tomb that is still occupied. We've come to an empty tomb. And that means the preparation that we do isn't dusting off and refurbishing the flowers every week, but it's preparing for a feast and for a wedding. That's what we're doing every time we come. We're stewarding more the reality of a wedding feast where the bridegroom is amongst us, just like Julian was with me preparing for our wedding and in and out of the discussions. The, it's not we're waiting for one day when he might come. No, no, the bridegroom is here and he's saying, how about this? And how about we organize like this? And how about the flowers like this? Because a wedding is coming and that's what we're gathering about. That's what we're stewarding, not only on a Sunday, 
But Monday right through to Saturday, we're preparing for that wedding feast. And that's the point when Mary gets, in John 20, you see Mary gets to the tomb and she calls the disciples and they go in and they see that the cloths have been folded. That's not just a random um, coincidence that John decides to put into the story. The cloths being folded is important because in Jewish custom, if you had a guest and they folded the bedclothes, that meant they were coming back. That's what it means. So when they go in and they see, and it says, the, the, let's read it because it's so beautiful. John 20, Simon Peter came, verse six, Simon Peter came, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. He's coming back. That's the point. And so I, re I really want to say this, and I don't know why Jesus gave me this image, but it's obviously important for us as a community. The table is not about attending a gravesite and maintaining it. It's not about going through rituals so that we can make sure that we keep remembering this great guy. It's about us understanding that we're stewarding in our lives and the, in these moments uh, an anticipation of a feast. And he's in our midst and he's saying, yeah, let's do it this way and let's practice in this way and let's have this moment because we're going to do this all together. And the fragrance of our worship is mingling with all the fragrance of thousands and thousands of churches all over the world that's filling the heavenly places because one day all of these little snippets and pictures will come together at a wedding feast and we'll be together but that's the moment that we're stewarding and anticipating together and I love what Jesh said about communion because I hadn't planned to say any of this but anticipation is exactly what God is inviting us into let's be aware of that in our everyday moments that's what makes the resurrection the most offensive thing that we carry. That's why uh, non-Christians find Christians offensive. That's the offense of the gospel. It's not his death that's the offense. It's his resurrection that's the offense. If it was just his death, everyone would be on board. It would be like, yes, in the same way that Martin Luther King was assassinated, that great champion of freedom, Jesus was assassinated, and people would rally and non-Christians would say, absolutely, yeah, let's mark moments. Yes, let's have some bread and some wine and toast this fallen hero. It's the resurrection that stops them from saying that because the claim around his life isn't okay it's offensive we're not saying he's a fallen hero we're saying he's a living king and so we get invited to something much more radical and I think God was reminding me of it not just for me but for us let's walk in the radical reality of what we're doing when we meet when we go to work, when we talk to people at a coffee shop, all of it is in preparation of a wedding feast and the bridegroom is with us in all of it, in every moment of it. And that's why we don't wanna go onto the streets of Boston just armed with social justice, although we wanna see social justice. 
but we're armed with the offense of the gospel because without the resurrection, everything else lacks power. But social justice with the resurrection has the power to transform this city. And so offense or no offense, that's what we carry. And that's what we speak. That's the gospel we preach. Okay, let's go to John 15. That was an introduction to today's message. You know, a few years ago, my grandfather, who was a very, very... Um, I wish you'd all got to meet him. You will meet him in heaven, and you can introduce yourselves to him. I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he is uh, very much invested and involved in what's happening at the table. That's the sort of guy he was. Um, my grandfather, he was about 97. He was living with my parents. And um, I remember being home for, uh, I was home for the weekend or something. No one else was in. It was just me and my grandfather. And he said to me, Katya, come and sit down, have breakfast with me. I've got something really important to tell you. I was like, sure, okay. Sat down with him and he started saying to me how... Um, how God had spoken to him about how he was going to pass away the next day. And he was like, I'm just telling you this so that when everyone is mourning, you will know that I knew it was coming. Um, And he began to tell me, like, his thoughts, thoughts about the future for us as a family, thoughts for me, uh, just ran some random musings. Anyway, I was like, hang on a second, ran and grabbed a notebook and I was writing furiously because I was like, this is, this is important. This is a man who pioneered the modern day move of God in Iran. The, like his words are gold. So I'm writing them down, crying my eyes out, just like it's this crazy, intense, overwhelming moment. And he's just like, calmly telling me all of these things he was a very calm man nothing really moved him very much and um anyway that was that and we just kind of went on with the rest of our day and i my parents came home at some point and i was just saying to them like he said to me he was saying things like i know that tomorrow i must go the way of all men stuff like that it was just really funny the way he was wording it but anyway took it all next morning i come down the stairs like grieving already full of like this horrible weighty feeling and uh i come to see my grandfather sitting there having his morning porridge and i was like um like how do you say to someone why are you not dead like it's a really awkward (laughs) moment but i kind of felt cheated in that moment because i was like i cried and cried for hours and i sat with him and i was like papa which is what i called him papa like uh what happened to our conversation yesterday? He claimed he had no idea what I was talking about and he went on to live very healthy for another two years. So I have absolutely no idea what that moment was about. But anyway, I have a notebook filled with words of wisdom from a man who thought he was going to die but didn't die. (laughs) My point is this. (laughs) There is a point. When someone knows they're going to pass away, they're not telling you random things that are inconsequential. They're going to give you all of the things that are the most important, the things that they know you need for 
for life, for everything. They're not going to be like, let's just talk a little bit more about the fashion back in the day. You know, they're not going to be, they're going to be telling you the things that they know you need. So in John 15, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he knows this is the last night he's got with them before he dies, he's not telling them random interesting tidbits of theology, he's giving them the foundations. If you need to know the crux of what we need to get from Jesus for everyday life, John 15, John 16, John 17, really good chapters to go to, because those are his knowledge of the last moments he's going to spend with his disciples before he dies. So those are the things that are like the most crucial foundations for us to grasp. And I love it because they're actually very different to what you might think. So we're going to read John 15 together. Words that are super familiar, I know, but we'll read it together. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We'll stop there, even though it's so good. Um, when I first met Julian, I noticed that he asked me where I lived in a very different way to how you would normally pose that question in the UK, or I think in America even. Uh, and I don't know really if it's a South African thing or if it's a Julian thing. But he doesn't say, where do you live? He says, where do you stay? And is that South African? Is, or is that a Julian thing? Okay, so that's a South African thing. Yeah, where do you stay? And I, I love that because it feels more descriptive almost than where do you live? Maybe it's because we're so familiar with where do you live? But where do you stay? And really my question for us as a church is where do we stay? Because Jesus is inviting his disciples into something which is all about staying. He's effectively saying to them, guys, the, the crux of everything for you, this is going to be the thing that determines everything. It's going to be where do you stay? It's not where you start. Where do you stay? That's going to be the most important thing. 
I love it because he starts with, I am the true vine. The reason he says that is because in the Old Testament, Israel was seen as the vine. But the vine of Israel was fruitless. And so it actually doesn't do what it's intended to do. It's intended to bless the nations. But you've got Old Testament verses in Psalms and in Isaiah showing us that the vine of Israel failed even through even though God had called them to do something and so when Jesus says to his disciples I'm the true vine he's saying I'm the fulfillment of all of the promises over Israel where Israel fails I stand firm and come through on all of the things promised and so he's the true vine the father is the vine dresser and then he talks about every branch that doesn't bear fruit gets taken away but branches that do bear fruit get pruned. Pruning is not a sign that you've done something wrong. Pruning is a sign that you've been fruitful. And so often as Christians, where things go wrong because we still have a punishment mentality of God, no matter how many times we learn that there is no punishment in God because the cross took all punishment. But when things go wrong, we often have a punishment mentality, which is I must have done something wrong. So God is disciplining me. But really, if it's payback for the past, it's not discipline, it's punishment. Because discipline looks forward, punishment looks back. So if you ever have the thought process of, I must have done something wrong, which is why this has gone wrong. God has allowed this to happen to teach me because I did that thing wrong. That's punishment language. And God doesn't do that. But in fact, the Bible tells us he doesn't prune the unfruitful. He prunes the fruitful. So we need to change our lenses entirely And we need to start seeing moments where there's like cutting back. I'm not talking about sin, right? If you're sinning, Julian often says this, if you're sinning, stop it. Because it's natural for you as a Christian to stop sinning. So just stop it. So this isn't about if things go wrong as a consequence of your sin. Katya said that actually it's because I've been fruitful. No, don't do stupid sins because they have bad consequences. But outside of sin consequences, When there's moments in your life where you feel like I'm being held back or I'm being cut back, don't let your instinct be, God's teaching me a lesson for the ways that I failed in the last few months. No. God said it's a vote of confidence in you that moment. God's allowing it. Sometimes it it may be coming from the enemy. That's not the issue. What I'm talking about is God allows pruning in our lives from many different sources for the fruitful branches. And so we've got to understand the lens that in the moments where we feel held back, it's not a punishment. It's an understanding that he's allowing a pruning of an already fruitful branch. Why do you prune branches? For greater fruit. The whole intention isn't, let me make you feel small. The whole intention is, let me equip you for greatness. Let me equip you for greater fruitfulness than what you've already experienced. And then we get into the best bits. Three abide in me's that I want to highlight. The first abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. Verse four. He's inviting us into a life free from fatigue. Part of the reason I wanted to preach on this this morning is because I didn't feel like preaching this morning. I felt exhausted. I've been struggling with Crohn's all week. I've had flare-ups. I've not been in a happy space. I was like, ah, the last thing I want to do is stand up and preach. And I caught myself in a, a thought cycle this morning, which was basically, God, I don't have the strength to stand up. This is going to be a nightmare. And he was like, really? 
You really think the success is going to come off the back of you having energy enough to stand up. That's funny. That's a really sweet thought process, completely incorrect, by the way, because the fruitfulness doesn't come from our strength. The fruitfulness comes from where we're staying. Where do you stay? Where do I stay? And he kind of just gave me a wonderful, gentle, rebuke is too harsh, just a smiling comment that shook me back into reality, which is, Katya, you're not going to see miracles because you felt well that week so that you'd been able to prepare well and so that you have the energy to preach for long. No, you're going to see the power come simply from where you've been staying. Notice, and this is really important for us to get as a community right from the beginning, the commands in these verses aren't to bear fruit, the commands in these verses are to stay, abide. Your responsibility isn't to try hard to bear fruit. My responsibility isn't to try hard to bear fruit. As if a tree stands there and goes, trying really hard to bear fruit. That's not how it works. Where you stay determines the fruit, not your effort. The soil that the tree is in, the water that it's allowed to drink up, the nutrients that it's allowed to absorb, those determine the fruitfulness, not the, the tree's effort in, its, in and of itself. And I needed a reminder of that this morning, which is why I decided to preach to myself. You could all leave the room right now and I'd still keep preaching because I need to hear this. Where you stay determines your fruitfulness, which is an invitation to live free from fatigue. Because this isn't by my effort. I don't have to keep pushing as if reaching exhaustion point proves that somehow I worked hard enough to get something. No. Where do you stay? And I love this because this isn't the staying in someone who's distant and cold and us desperately trying to convince him somehow to let us hang on even though so often we're dead weight. No, this is a God who's chosen to live in us, abide in me as I abide in you. He's basically saying, I'm already there and I'm inviting you, come close, let's hang out. Where do you stay? All fruitfulness flows from intimacy. There is no other way. And it's what we do in the private that overflows into the public. People so often say to me, I'd love to do what you do. Like, how do you, how do you practice for that moment? The biggest practice is wasting time on Jesus. Wasting time on Jesus as if that's possible to do. But the point is this, that you cannot do this if you're not doing the staying. There's no way to achieve a public ministry without a private intimacy. It will kill you. And that's why God often in his kindness doesn't catapult us before we're ready. And we're chomping at the bit and we're saying, why am I being held back? Perhaps it's because we've not understood the staying and we're trying to do the fruitfulness without the abiding. And he's saying, you will die. Try to do that and you will die. You cannot possibly bear the fruit. Table community, we cannot possibly change the city if we don't understand that we've got to stay 
If we're thinking that we're going to come up with clever strategies, that we're going to come up with really interesting evangelistic meetings, that we're going to put our hope in those things in order to change in this, change this city, we will literally die of discouragement, disappointment, and fatigue. If we want to bear fruit, the only way to do it is to constantly make sure that our roots are in his soil drinking up his water. That's the only way to do it. And so we're going to have lots of great ideas, but I want to tell you, if you want to belong to a church that seems really clever, this one's probably not the one for you. You're going to ask me questions, hoping for clever strategies. This is my strategy. Where do we stay? We love you guys. Have a time. Where we stay is going to determine every piece of fruit that we ever grow. (sighs) Then he invites us again. Verse 7. If you... Oh no, let's just look at one more verse in that just to underline it. Verse 5. Whoever abides in me, I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I feel like I need to get that tattooed on my forehead so every morning when I wake up and I'm thinking through my day and I'm getting my, uh, my head into gear, I can remember genuinely this day is meaningless apart from him. I can try to parent my kids as best as I can. I can try to think of great strategies for the church. I can meet with people and in my best effort, love on them and pastor on them. Apart from him, I can do nothing. And I think sometimes we kid ourselves that apart from him, we can do something. So sometimes we ride on fumes of his presence because we're still going, going, going long after we know that we've walked well away from where we stay. Let's be a community that keeps reminding ourselves, write it on your forehead so you see, but you'd have to do it backwards if you're looking in the mirror anyway. (laughs) Write it on your forehead so every morning you will understand anything I do today, if it's apart from him, it will be meaningless. It literally will amount to nothing. It's hard hitting and it's meant to be because he's, this is his last words to his disciple before he dies. He needs them to get it. 12 men who are meant to change the world, he needs them to get this over anything else. Apart from me, you will do nothing. Where do you stay? It is the most important thing about you. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's invited us into a life free of fatigue. He's inviting us into a life free from discouragement. Mm -hmm. Abide in me, my words abide in you. This is a really important thing for us to understand. Uh, In the Greek, there are two different words for the word word. There's logos and there's rhema. Logos is eternal truth. Jesus is the logos. He is the word. He is eternally the same. Then there's the rhema word, which is a moment specific word that is given for the moment to give you revelation for what you need. This word that he's speaking about is the rhema word. He's saying, live in me, come and stay in me and allow my rhema word to live in you. And as that rhema word lives in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. 
Some of us are discouraged in what we're praying in our circumstances because we've not understood the rhema word for our season. We've not understood his revelation that we need in that moment about who he is, about who he made us to be, about what our circumstances are for, so that we keep feeling like we're praying words that just seem to be going into nowhere. It's because we've not understood the words that we're armed with to pray through, to see breakthrough come in our season. That's why we live in places where we feel like we're surrounded by discouragement. But he's saying, no, no, come and stay in me. Stay in me so you're free from fatigue and allow my rhema word to take root in you, to live in you and to be the launch pad from which you ask my father for whatever you wish so that you will see it done for you. And I want to say to you guys that this doesn't mean the rhema word is easy or quick. But it does mean that once you're armed with that rhema word, stick on it until you see it come to pass. Because it makes you suddenly have confidence that what you're going for is exactly what he's designed you for. When God spoke to us about coming to Boston and we didn't have a house and we kept being rejected from houses, we, the, the one thing that kept us here, even in this last week where loads of things have felt like this is really not fun right now, the thing that makes us stick isn't, oh, this is a beautiful city, oh, oh, we like our friends, although it is a beautiful city and we like you all. That's not the thing that's gonna see us stick here through thick and thin. The thing that's seeing us stick here is the rhema word. I'm like, I can't go anywhere else because he made himself clear. There is no other option. Sometimes we laugh about it and we're like, maybe somewhere else would have been easier, like South of France Vineyard. I could do that, okay? And that would be really tempting, except we've heard the rhema word and there's nowhere else to go. Once he's made himself clear, refuse to change the subject. The enemy will do everything he can to get you to change the subject. He will give as much fear as he can. He will give as much discouragement as he can. He will bring as much opposition as he can. He will bring as many voices of wisdom from the wisdom from the Christian community that he can muster who will tell you why you're on the wrong path. Ignore all of those things. Refuse to change the subject. If you've heard the rhema word, don't move. And I say this often, so you might have heard me say it before, but the enemy is consistently playing spiritual chicken with each and every one of us. He sees us moving in one direction and he comes at us head on, betting that we will move. He's playing spiritual chicken with you. His instinct, because he knows human beings very well now, is that humans will move first. What if you don't? Stand your ground. This is why spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 isn't run around, it's stand. Because spiritual warfare doesn't need you to go and claim ground. The ground has been given to you. It's whether you're able to suck it up and stand your ground. The enemy's going to try to convince you, move around. Why don't you go find some high place now to attack me from? Move off this ground. Get distracted. Don't get distracted. Refuse to change the subject. God called us to Boston. We're here to stay. Is it expensive? Absolutely. Am I genuinely wondering where we will get the finances to pay for our kids' schooling, pay for our rent? Absolutely. 
Am I worried? Honestly, no. Because the God who called me is the God who's going to provide for the calling that he gave me. That's up to him. It's not up to me. I didn't come up with this idea. He did. So it's up to him. And it's the same for the words that he's spoken over your lives. You didn't come up with those ideas. He did. James and Haisa, he spoke over you. He promised you something. You didn't come up with that. That wasn't your idea. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. Alex, he called you here. He gave you these crazy ideas of being an architect and you were like, I don't even want to be that. He gave you the idea of culturally being an architect. Stand your ground. Standing your ground is important. And I could go all the way through. You were called to shape worship. Stand your ground. Stand your ground in fashion. Stand your ground. You were made to shape culture creatively, Sophie. Stand your ground. Each of us, that's what we're called to, to hear the rhema word. You heard it. Stand your ground. Because your destiny is on the other side of that game of spiritual chicken. Come on. Abide in me and let my rhema word abide in you. Live that word. Preach that word over you. Do what I've done to some of you. Do that to yourself in the mirror. Arm yourself with those rhema words. Remind yourself again and again and again and again so those words take root in you and become who you are and you refuse to change the subject. It leads to a life free from discouragement because it was his idea, not mine. He's the one who's got to see it come to pass. I don't have to try hard. I don't have to get exhausted trying to push the word to come to pass. I didn't come up with it. Last one. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Abide in my love. He's inviting us to live a life free from doubt. An understanding of his love resolves any doubts and fears in our hearts. It's, it's directly related. Our experience of, of any fear or anxiety or doubt will literally go down to the extent that we understand and experience his love for us. Because 1 John says, there's no fear in love. And so literally, these two are on a related pendulum. The more you experience the love, the more the fear and anxiety and doubt goes down. The less you experience the love, the less you encounter it, the less you live in it, the less it becomes your atmosphere, the more the fear and the doubt will go up. They're consistently related, and we get to choose which atmosphere we live in. We get to choose if we want to allow the fear to be the voice that is loudest in our lives, or we get to invite his love and to stay in his love. Again, where do you stay? In the moments where anxiety is overwhelming me, I know that I need to put some worship music on and literally go after this one thing, which is Jesus, show me how much you love me. Because the moment I get revelation of that, all of the questions of why, what's happening, I don't know where we're going, this is terrifying, dissipate, because I understand he loves me, he's not going to let me go. 
That's what we need to pursue in the seasons of doubt, in the seasons of insecurity, in the seasons of anxiety. Literally that one thing, abide in his love. The more we get that, the more all other questions will unravel. I heard Danny Silk say once that really, under, the question why isn't really a question. It's a statement. It's like, I didn't like what just happened, try again. When we're asking God why questions, there's a deeper question under that. that that's not really your, your most pressing question, even though it might feel that in the moment. But your deeper question is, do you care? That's what the question why stands on. And when he answers the do you care, you often find the why disappears because you don't need to know. Yeah. Relating back to our wedding story, well, after our wedding, we were in Reading for a conference. And, um, and I've told you all the story of when I got crazy and was laughing in joy and it was just really embarrassing. Anyway, one of the things God was teaching me, warfare, which I know I've shared with you guys, but one of the things he showed me as I was lying on the floor being an insane person is that he showed me the angels he assigned me on our wedding day. And in, in those weeks, I've been asking Jesus a lot, why did you let that happen? the question below that for me was, do you care? Like, I actually don't need the technicality of why do you need that, why did you let that happen? Why did you let us get so robbed on our wedding day? You had the power to stop it. I know that, so why did you let it happen? I didn't need to know the technicalities of that. What I was really asking was, gosh, we thought we were serving you and you love us, and you kind of like, really allowed the enemy to steal from us that moment. Why did you let it happen? But as he showed me the angels he assigned me and spoke to me about what he was doing that day for me, I was so overwhelmed with this care and attention that I didn't need to know the why anymore because I knew without a shadow of a doubt he cares. He cares for me. Even in the silliest thing like a wedding day, which is just one day, he cares. Stay in his love. It is directly related to the doubts and the fears that you will experience. When you're in those moments, push back and keep saying to him, I need to know your love. Show me, show me tangibly your care and affection. If we stay in that place, we will live a life free from doubt. The wise disappear in the presence of his love. All of it he says to us so that his joy might be in us and our joy may be full. What an amazing promise. Next week I'm going to speak on joy, so I'm not going to talk too much about this right now. But let's just all stand together. We're starting Advent with uh, the words on the eve of Jesus' death. And we're doing that because they are the crux of what it means to be Christians. Stay, that's what it means, stay. Where do you stay? Where do we stay? Where do I stay? It's the thing that will determine everything in our everyday moments. And let's just open up our hands for a moment. Each of us will be responding to different parts of this. Some of you, you're exhausted, like I felt about two hours ago. 
And you're like, I'm really done. I feel like I've been walking really, really long and I just need to lie down. And he's like, great, come and stay here. Lie down. Some of us just literally need to give up, give up the way we're trying so hard and just to rest. So the Father, Holy Spirit, I invite you, ah, the one who lives in us, to blow away fatigue and exhaustion. Some of us, it took all of our efforts just to get here. We're like, I moved here and I don't even know now what. I'm so tired simply from the move. I don't know what to do. Allow the Spirit, the one who lives in you, to refresh you. And some of you, you need to stir up those rhema words. And you've been taking a beating from the enemy. And you were about ready to give up on that word. And the game of spiritual chicken has been really hard. And just as you're lying down in him, allow those words to sustain you. You don't need to do anything more than don't give up ground. Don't turn around. Don't move to the right or the left. Stand your ground. Your breakthrough is the other side of that game of spiritual chicken. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. I come against the lies of the enemy. Hey! We as a community stand together with shields locked together. Hey, and we stand on this ground, this city that has been given to us as an inheritance because he paid for it and he called us here. We're standing this ground. And for each and every one of you over your destiny, I speak sticking courage. <laughs> Literally like faith would be like glue on your feet. That you wouldn't budge. And some of you, you're just hurt. And the doubts and the questions of why have got really loud in this season. And he's not rebuking. He's not doing anything other than saying, let me show you my love again. Let me show you my affection so that you will be fortified in the face of the wise. Spirit of God, I invite you to come and overwhelm us with a tangible experience of your affection. For men and women in this room who really need to know your love afresh, I pray this week, God, that you would surprise, just as you've done for me so many times, that you would surprise, you would surprise them with a tangible measure of your love this week out of nowhere, out of the blue moments that would be overwhelming. But Papa loves me. He really loves me. He actually does see and he actually does care. And he's with me in the fire. And I pray you would wrap all of this up for us as was your intention, Jesus, with great joy. That we would be a community of joy. And that even preempting next week, Lord, 
you would bring such joy that that would be a marker of our fruit this week. And we'd get together next week laughing about the fruit of joy. <sighs> Sustain us, fortify us, give us deep rest this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the Sunday Morning Podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.